Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand. Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. Today I'm joined by my brother. I have no anecdote today because we're doing something that I'm not really that familiar with. So I'm just going to call him Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> I like, hi guys. Hi guys. Hi guys. Dag, today we're doing a topic that's near and dear to your heart, but one that I only know cursorily from my relationship with you. And, yeah. and something that I guess I was moderately interested in when I was younger, but haven't really thought a great deal about in many years, which is Calvin and Hobbes. Yes. And this was obviously a seminal comic strip for you and your development as a creative person and an artist. And I know you want to talk about it today. So I'm doing something a little different where I will still lead the charge, of course, and, and host the podcast. But I have, for the first time, no notes. Oh, see and, that? I like this. This is something different. And I want to kind of pick your brain about this and learn about it as I go because it would feel... I, I felt... Unlike literally every other topic we've done in which I have some sort of direct interest in or direct yeah. knowledge of, yeah, yeah, I felt like it would have been a little disingenuous for me to do a bunch of research on Calvin and Hobbes when I'm just getting dates and times and but don't really have experience with it. Absolutely. So I feel like this is a, a great topic for you to to flesh out as you educate me and the audience and we talk about what this means to you. And so I think it'll be a fun one to do. That sounds awesome. I love everyone's feedback on this particular format. I don't think the format will read differently, but maybe it will. You'll see. Yeah, it'll be fun. Let's try it out. Before we do that, though, Dagan, of course, for this wave, wave four of knockback that we've been recording. Yes. We are doing a little change up here, changing the subject, where we talk about a non sequitur topic that doesn't require a full knockback episode, but that we can talk about for a few moments before we get into this week, Calvin and Hobbes. There you go. Well said. What is the topic this week? Today's topic, Carl, is Edgar Allan Poe. Oh! Yeah. Oh! <laughs> nice. That was great. In Dude, stereo, I love, no I, less. I love Poe. Pit and the Pendulum is one of my favorite stories. Yeah, I really want... I had a, I had an inkling that you were you really liked Edgar Allan Poe's works. And I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to know what your uh, quick impression of him, him is. Edgar Allan Poe is a unique American poet and author who was unnecessarily dark yes. and unnecessarily brooding and lots of interesting fucked up stories about him are true. And he also, as I recall, represents Maryland. And we don't have too many people from the Baltimore yeah. area that we really look at as kind of American icons, but he's one of those mid-Atlantic American icons. Because yep. we always think about New York, we think about California, whatever the case might be. But I like Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe was introduced to me in a deeper way by our shared AP English teacher, Mrs. Parry, who we've talked about in, in previous episodes. Yeah. And, and I was quite enamored with certain stories. Everyone, you know, the, the Raven and all that kind of stuff people love, but Pit and the Pendulum 
was a terrifying kind of look at horror in a clever sort of 19th century way. Yeah. And I've always carried that story with me. That's a great story. One of my earliest ex- exposures to Poe as well. What do you think about, about He was Edgar one Allen? of my earliest writing influences. I think it's the same thing. It goes back for me to Mrs. Parry. Miss Parry. I had a creative writing class, I guess in ninth or 10th grade. It was pre-honors English, pre-AP English. And I had a creative writing class with her, and that was the first time I had her. And I think we must have read Poe in her class. And my my first short story that I ever wrote, you know, in, as a tenth grader in high school, was very inspired by Poe. It was like, as I remember, it was about like this evil clown or something. It was very Edgar Allan Poe esque, you know, very dark and brooding and overly dark. I think a lot of high school students probably introduction to writing and fiction is through Poe. That grabs us at that age because we're so angsty already anyway, I think, you know. So that was my earliest recollections of, you know, and all the old UPA cartoons that they adapted into animated shorts based on his various works, which are awesome, too. Yeah, Poe to me is like the natural continuation today of the Tim Burton aesthetic or the more horror-laden kind of producers and directors and films we've gotten, especially in the 70s and 80s. There's something, like you said, dark and brooding, but that was unusual. And now, not unusual at all, but he gothic. really... Gothic. Yeah, yes, exactly. Right. A, a gothic and post-gothic kind of aesthetic kind of feel. It's the same thing with like Mary Shelley and certain other writers. Not that she's American, because she's not. But that we're writing different things than everyone else were writing. Yeah. In, in her case, Deeper Horror or Bram Stoker is a similar... You know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, by the way, is an amazing book. If people haven't read it, it's just so good. And so Poe is a similar kind of author to me that would be almost dime a dozen-ish even 50 years after his time, but certainly wasn't dime a dozen at that time. Very and, well put. And I think that's why he lives on, you know, not only his cool name, of course, but... Awesome name. You know, I think Allie, our sister, really likes Poe, yeah, too. Yeah, but you're right. Definitely seen as the original, right? Certainly. And that horror gothic that kind of yeah. It's recognizable today what Poe has influenced over time. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, sir, for nice answering that. But today, we're going to focus our episode and our energies on Calvin and Hobbes. And again, as I said, I have no preparation for this. Again, I don't want to come off as disingenuous. So this is a thing where I'm going to be learning along with the audience, I think. And, okay. And I'm excited about it. This is one that I'm, I've been looking forward to hearing in our new wave here. And we have a few questions from the audience to kind of round things out at the end or comments. Oh, that's good. So we have a few things as well there, but I'm interested to see where this one goes. So, I mean, talk to me about Calvin and Hobbes. I'm, I'm interested a little bit in, in the history and then, of course, how you were exposed to him. And, well, I guess there's three silos we can talk about, about his history or their history as a comic strip duo and who made it and where it came from and right. what influenced it. And then, of course, I guess the strip itself and the life and times of Calvin and Hobbes. And then, of course, the influences that were left behind by you know, it at its most meteoric, I guess. So yeah, absolutely. So we'll, we'll start there. So yeah, tell me a little bit about the history and what it's all about. Okay. So Calvin and Hobbes was a newspaper comic strip syndicated. So widely distributed in the United States that started in 1985 and spanned 10 years through partially through 1995, created and written and drawn by Bill Watterson. And the strip is widely known for being very much a standout in the history of comics and considered widely by people to be one of the best comics, if not the best 
quote unquote best comic ever made because it was so innovative and so different than everything that came before. And it was a, a work of enormous quality. And, you know, it can't be overstated that Bill Watterson is definitely seen as sort of the J.D. Salinger of comics in that he walked away as a 38-year-old, I believe, after only 10 years of doing the strip, which is a very short time if you think of something like Garfield and especially things like Peanuts, things that have spanned for decades, right? Decades and decades. Bill Watterson walked away from the strip after only 10 years from doing it and basically retired from comics, period, because of or partially because of he felt that he never wanted to merchandise the strip in any way. And apparently he was getting a lot of pressure or he inherently felt like it was a lot of pressure to merchandise, which he pretty much has construed as basically selling out and sort of robbing the, the strip of its soul. And basically walked away because of it and basically left comics and just any kind of commercial art and any sort of commercial presence at all, period. And, you know, it's very notable part of the story of the strip. But what I'd like to get started with, if you don't mind, Kyle, is just my initial exposure to the strip. Please. The comic strip and just how special it was to me initially and many, not only me, but many people and why it sort of resonated so strongly. And so I found the strip. I really had to think back on this. I definitely wasn't reading the strip in its early iterations. I probably found the strip either sometime early in ninth grade or the summer going into ninth grade. So around 1988. So the strip had already been around for two or three years when I discovered it. And I instantly fell in love with it. Now, I was also at an age where I was starting to really be mindful of art and a career in art. And I was already, of of course, very into animation. It wouldn't be too long before really big influencers of my life and artistic life came about. Things like Ren and Stimpy, things like anime, things like manga. And Calvin and Hobbes was one of the earliest and stayed one of the strongest inspirations for me as an artist and a writer because I think partially because it just stood out so much. Now, I always remember coming home from school and the newspaper we got growing up on Long Island was New York's Newsday, which was the main Long Island newspaper. And that's where I always read all my comics. And I remember always coming home from school and I'd always open up the paper. And I think I always checked out the funny pages. I always checked out the comic strips and I read Ann Landers and Dear Abby. And I read, you know, whatever I was into at that time. I flipped to the movie section, read the film reviews and stuff the movie reviews, but Calvin and Hobbes was such a big part of my life because that was a really big part of my day when I would come home. I would read the the comics, the weekday comics, and Calvin and Hobbes was always my go-to. And especially getting the Sunday paper, and we'll talk more about the Sunday editions of Calvin and Hobbes, I would love opening up the Sunday newspaper on the weekends to see Calvin and Hobbes because Bill Watterson was known to do really exquisite beautifully drawn artwork and I'll get more into it and he was also the guy who really pushed the limits of the comic strip format and fought for more space and so he could do more innovative things and try he was very experimental and he basically took the comic medium not that other people didn't do this in their own way before he did there was guys especially that he was very interested in like Windsor McKay back in the early 1900s, and guys like George Harriman, who did Crazy Cat, 
which was an old black and white strip. I know Bill Watterson was very inspired by George Harriman. And guys like Charles Schultz, who, who did Peanuts dating all the way back, and Bill Watterson was very inspired by them. So there was there were certainly very notable cartoonists already, but Bill Watterson was known for taking the format of comics and pushing it and fighting for more space and fighting to do different things and fighting not to do like an initial gag panel that had nothing to do with the rest of the comic. He really fought tooth and nail for his art form and was very passionate about it. And as a result, gave us as readers and viewers a creation of great quality that really stood out from everything else. Quite frankly, it made everything else look cheap. And it was the first time I think I recognized that somebody was going above and beyond. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the first time, especially if you looked at Calvin and Hobbes, even a weekday edition, a simple three or four panel strip in Calvin and Hobbes with everything else. Let's say there was, you know, BC and Kathy and Garfield, even really cool things like Outland and Bloom County and stuff like that. It really stood out as being really well drawn. It was never the same twice. He would never rest on his laurels. It was the first time that resonated with me. It was like, look how far this guy's pushing it compared to everybody else. He's never, this guy's not, you know, phoning it in. You know, he's not relying on a formula and just doing the same thing and doing, you know, three months of comics and then sitting in the Bahamas, you know, like a lot of cartoonists did at that time. And, you know, it was also very, it became very apparent to me as I grew a little older that comic, and I, this can't be overstated, the art of doing a comic strip is probably the most difficult achievement. The fact of getting a syndicated comic strip, the act of getting a syndicated comic strip is probably the most difficult thing to do in commercial art. There's only about 200 of them on the planet, let's say, or at least in North America. And it's almost impossible to get a syndicated comic strip. I know a guy my friend Dan, who's extremely talented, and he's been fighting tooth and nail. He's mo- one of the most tenacious guys I know. Very, Also very talented. But he's been fighting for a comic strip for years. And you look at it, how good he is, and you're just like, if this guy can't get a comic strip, I don't know how anybody can get a comic strip in this day and age. You know, Dan's got a big head. He doesn't need to be filled up any more than he is. But anyway, I love him. You remember Dan from Connecticut. Yep, yep. Is syndication still a big thing with comics today? I mean, because in the decline of newspapers, are they are they in digital editions and all this? It's funny because I think even if you spoke to a professional cartoonist, I think you would see that even 10 or 15 years ago, it looked pretty dire that newspaper comics were going to be a thing anymore with, of course, it's a great question, with the demise of newspapers. But you, see, you have other things sort of taking its place, like the advent of web comics and stuff like that. But apparently newspaper comics are still a thing. I know, don't know, I'm not that educated on the fact of the newspaper business, which is kind of, I should know a little more because my father-in-law comes from that industry. He's retired now, but he comes from the newspaper printing industry. I think basically it's persevered more than they thought it was going to. I don't think they're putting too many nails in the coffin yet, but I think it's kind of a wait and see and see how it goes type thing. I think it's in a very transitional period still, but newspaper comics are still a thing, you know? Fortunately, something brilliant like Calvin and Hobbes existed when newspapers were still a big thing. Right, right. So, so tell me about the nature of, I guess, the genesis of this duo. And could you talk a little bit about where the idea for this strip came from and kind of what the point of it was? I remember pouring through, I guess, compilation books that you owned when yeah. I was younger with them in it. And I, I think I understand a little bit what's going on there. But what is the genesis of this story and and why these characters are important and kind of like 
you were talking about Kathy, which I think is terrible. And all these other, right. a lot of these, you know, Dilbert and all this kind of shit that Calvin and Hobbes to me stood out just aesthetically, but also in terms of like its coolness. Like it seemed like very old person-ish, the comic strips, in my opinion. I, yes. Even as a kid, I was like this. I don't understand this humor. It seems like it's for old, not funny people. Seems antiquated. Yeah. So it's a great point. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Bill Watterson started out as a political cartoonist, especially even in college, and was particularly inspired by not only things like Peanuts, but political cartoonists like Jim Borgman and a lot of guys like that were sort of just before his generation. But I think the seeds of Calvin and Hobbes were planted early, supposedly in early strips that he was doing in like his college newspapers and stuff, which are actually kind of hard to find. But eventually Calvin and Hobbes was sort of evolved into the story of a little six-year-old boy that lives in suburban United States. It's never stated where. Now, Bill Watterson grew was from Washington, D.C. area. I think he's from Alexandria and moved as a boy to suburban, I think suburban Columbus, somewhere in Ohio, and grew up in, you know, middle America in the suburbs. And I think Calvin Hobbes is sort of semi-autobiographical in that respect. And it centers around, you know, sort of the adventures slash misadventures of a little six-year-old boy who lives with his mom and dad in the suburbs, and he has a stuffed tiger named Hobbes. And what's striking about the strip is it does feel very contemporary, sometimes topical. And I think that's very well said. It didn't feel old timey or old fashioned like a lot of those comics did and do. It was sometimes humorous account. Sometimes it got philosophical. Sometimes it got emotional. And I think that's what resonated with the strip. Oftentimes it was very funny and very clever. Now, it should be said that Calvin is a very mischievous six-year-old boy he's kind of always pushing the boundaries with his parents you know he does a lot of crazy stuff you know he'll go outside and build a bunch of snowmen around the car to make it look like one of them got hit by the car and the rest of the snowmen are around like you know grieving for it while the heads rolled off the snowman or he's in the house filling the bathtub with paint there's a exaggeration in the strip i think we live vicariously through calvin a little bit because he's he's not bad but he's pretty bad he misbehaves a lot. You know, he's tricking the babysitter and locking her in the bathroom so he could go order pizza. Like, he's always doing... We kind of live vicariously through Calvin. We would never have been this bad as kids, which I think is part of the allure of the strip and what makes it fun. But you could have a whole arc of strips where he's giving his parents a hard time and it's very funny and clever and his parents are at their wit's end. And then it could turn to an arc where there was a specific arc in the strip, for example, where he loses Hobbes he leaves him outside and he loses him and it's like a week worth of strips where he's really upset and it resonates because you remember losing something valuable to you as a kid and it gets very emotional actually the way the parents deal with it and kind of help him through it and he can't fall asleep and sometimes it gets very philosophical where he's walking with Hobbes through the woods and there's litter on the ground and he's talking about how stupid people are and and you know it got topical in that way you know dealing with issues that I think Bill Watterson was concerned with, but never in a heavy-handed way. And also the other important thing, Kyle, that I should say about the strip was it's very imaginative in the fact of a lot of it deals with Calvin's imagination and how he plays and the way he sees Hobbes because basically, not to oversimplify, but basically if you see Hobbes in the strip, Calvin's toting him around. He's a little stuffed tiger with the stitching on the side and that's how the parents see him and Calvin sits him at the dinner table on his own chair. It's his little stuffed animal with the cocked head, and he's just sitting there slouching the chair. But Calvin sees him as a realistic tiger. 
So not as a realistic tiger, but he's sort of an anthropomorphic cartoony tiger, like a Bugs Bunny type that stands on his hind legs and he's super cute and he talks to Calvin and Calvin just sees him as a friend. And oftentimes that's how Hobbes is depicted in the, in the panels as Calvin's playmate. And he's talking to Calvin and having a conversation with him and Calvin's talking about how yucky girls are and Hobbes is like, I don't know, I think I would like a smooch from her, you know, type of thing. And so Hobbes is the older sibling surrogate a little bit. And Calvin, as a young six-year-old, kind of looks up to Hobbes a little bit, but Hobbes sort of emotes this wisdom, but it's flawed. You know, it's almost like he's only like a seven or an eight-year-old compared to how Calvin. You know, he's like, well, this is the way it really works. And then he explains why the sky is blue. And it's just like this crazy mix-up story. And Calvin's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's interesting. So it's a, it's a very funny dynamic. And Calvin is also has a personality that he sort of very reactive. He's very intelligent. He's a very bright kid and very imaginative. But he's also very reactive and, you know, he gets upset and Hobbes is much more laid back and being like, you know, Hobbes is much more of the laid back type. And you know what I mean? So they their personalities contrast a little bit, which is very sweet because Hobbes is just an imaginary thing. The strip resonates on the writing level because it could go back and forth from humor to pathos to something sweet to something philosophical. But also the art is absolutely gorgeous because what Bill Watterson really does was Sometimes there would be a week worth of strips where it's just Calvin and Hobbes drawn. And it's lovely. It's a lovely drawing style. Everybody knows what it looks like. And, you know, the color was always beautiful, watercolor. But sometimes the strip would just open up and he would do this really, Watterson would do this really illustrative comic book, really gorgeously rendered battle with like a Triceratops and a T-Rex. And if you didn't look at the title, you, didn't even know, you wouldn't even know this was Calvin and Hobbes, right? And that would span for like eight or nine panels on a Sunday page. And then the last panel would be Calvin sitting in the sandbox with his dinosaur toys. And all that precursor was just what he was imagining. Do you know how much work that takes to do something like that? Like, you know, you look at a, I don't, not picking on Kathy, but it's kind of easy to pick on a Kathy strip where it's like the same four panels, the same four characters. There's an elegance to it and everything like that, but... Watterson was really pushing the boundaries. Calvin imagined himself as a, and I love the way this pushes sort of the limits of things. Calvin sometimes, not too often, but he would imagine himself as a film noirish, very Maltese Falcon esque private eye named Tracer Bullet. Watterson would just draw this strip that looked like a whole other thing, it looked like a Brenda Starr strip, you know, with like this realistic soap opera type comic drawings, very dark and atmospheric. He's sitting in the office with the bottle of booze, with the light coming through the slats and the blinds. And again, if you just put your hand over that, you wouldn't even know this was a Calvin and Hobbes strip. And he's having an exchange with like this dame in the office, right? And the last panel just revealed itself to be Calvin and the little neighborhood girl Susie, and Susie's trying to convince him to play house. You know what I mean? Like, it was absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. There was never something that did that where you never, I think the element of surprise and never knowing what you were going to get and just the inherent quality of it. You know, it really stood out. It really made everything else pale in comparison. And not only did it draw in an audience and, you know, people that really held it in beloved esteem, but he became quite esteemed by his peers, by his cartoonist peers. He was a phenom, basically. And the work spoke for himself. And he was never, he was always stayed behind his comic. He very rarely did interviews. 
he never really presented himself. It, it was always Calvin and Hobbes. It was never Bill Watterson. You know, he really kind of stayed away from the limelight. I think he won some Eisner Awards early on in 86, 87, 88. He never even picked them up. Almost to the point, I don't want to say this, but Bill Watterson is really one of my idols, but almost to the point of, of obnoxiousness. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I actually wrote down a note so I wouldn't forget, which was you mentioned the idea of selling out. And I'm interested in your opinion on this because I've vacillated between, well, I don't want to say between. When I was younger, we would see a band we would really like and then they would put out a big gold record and you'd be like, what a bunch of fucking sellouts, right? Right, of course. And I always felt like this term really was meaningless, that mm-hmm. it was it was this thing of disparaging a person going commercial with their art or their creation, their music, their painting, whatever the case might be. And I'm like, well, that's an expression of, an, of a free market. In other words, the fact that we live in a market where creativity is valued by the normal consumer is not only an incredibly new phenomenon in the course of human history. You go back to when people were serfs in Europe and ask them how valuable a fucking painting was to them when they were eating goddamn fucking radishes right. and shit, <laughs> you know, and dirt, you know. So to me, when I like the smarter I think and the older I got. And the more I thought about it and being a creative person myself who has made all of my money in entertainment, I always looked at it as a situation where I'm like, this is a great sign of a progressive and new age in human history where you can sell out. That's an expression of the demand of the market for your work. And so I came to embrace it where I was like, I will sell out. Right. Sure, I will. Absolutely, because it Please. it means that I'm it means that my shit is reaching people, and I can benefit from it and make more of it and live a comfortable life for my hard work. That's a great outlook. So now, when I see, you know, like my favorite band is Three Eleven, and I have a lot of friends in the music industry, including people that are close to me, that give me a lot of insight into how much these bands still make. Three Eleven has not missed a tour summer since 1998. They tour every summer. Do they really? Yeah. And I was asking my friend recently. I'm like. They must be pretty loaded at this point. They have platinum records and they've been touring forever and you make a lot of money touring and merch and they have a hardcore audience. I'm like, don't you think they would take time off and like chill and be with their families and stuff? And it's like, no, they make enormous amounts of money doing this. They're going to do this until no one shows up at these shows anymore. Why wouldn't they? Right. Of course. The more you describe this person, the more I find him sounding obnoxious because it's hard not to think that. Because if people are curious about you, then do some interviews. I, I'm certainly a recluse as far as YouTube and podcast creators go. Right. But I still interface with my audience in lots of different ways. I just do it on my own terms and in ways that I'm most, comfort, I'm most comfortable. So I'm curious how you feel about this notion of selling out. Because surely if you were able to sell out, you would, wouldn't you? In all fairness, I think the notion of selling out has changed since then. Because I think there's more ways to quote unquote sell out. Really, what tr- sellout translates to is making a living off your stuff and making a very comfortable living maybe off your stuff. But back then, apparently, I used to hear that, you know, I've always followed Bill Wardison ever since I was a kid, ever since I discovered the strip. And I used to hear that what his concern was and why he walked away or why he was fixing to walk away before he did was that what he equated to merchandise and merchandising was answering the question of whether Hobbes was real or not. Which is actually kind of ridiculous. That was never the thing. Because Hobbes is apparently not real. It's, well, I it's, think it's obvious that he's not real. He's right? not real. He's a product of Calvin's imagination. Now, what it really was, was that Watterson was truly concerned that having his creations on the side of coffee cups or on bed sheets or on bumper stickers 
or even plush versions or an animated series or, you know, not even getting into it. Let's not even get into any kind of media yet. Let's just say merchandising on greeting cards and stuff. He was really concerned that that would strip the soul out of his creation. Now, I understand trying to preserve some kind of mystique. And I think part of the reason, in all fairness, that Calvin and Hobbes is so revered today is because it had such a short life as compared to other things in media and that it left us wanting more and more. But I think that Watterson could have merchandised within reason. Now, there's a comic strip called Pearls Before Swine. That's a very popular strip now. Not a contemporary to Watterson. He's a little younger, but I know they've had a rapport. I think they're friends. His name is, I don't know if his name is Stefan Pastis or Pastis, but I don't know the strip that well. But in a documentary, he said it very well that he understood Watterson's sort of dilemma or sort of hesitance to merchandise a strip to a degree. But he never really understood why there couldn't be a Hobbs doll made. And he said he could have people would have loved that and what harm would it have done for instance right but he was just i think what waterson thought was that if he went down that rabbit hole with let's say a couple of things that there would be no end in sight to it right but this doesn't make any sense to me because if he owns the ip then yeah. just exercise agency over it and just say go pick up your award like an adult right and say Thank you to the right. people that are Say voting thank for this. You. Right. And appreciation for yeah, appreciation to your peers and they've done it multiple years in a row and you don't go even go and acknowledge them. You sound like a douchebag. And just be open or don't say anything, but just be like, we're not doing this. And it doesn't mean that I'm selling out or not. Clearly, you're making very good living syndicating your your strip to everyone. So stop acting like you don't have money, first of all. And the second thing right. is that if you don't want to do these things, then just don't do them. It doesn't mean anything. You've kind of sold out the second that you had a syndicated comic strip, dude. Right. It seems a little faux pretentious because if you really cared, then you would have been like, maybe what I should do is photocopy my fucking comic strip and stick it on telephone poles, <laughs> you know, and maybe hopefully someone will see it. It's just that's the kind of shit that bothers me where I'm like, oh, the band is selling out that has a three record commitment to Columbia. It's like, oh, OK, right. I think the second you fucking signed the document, you sold out, dude. It wasn't the number of records or the uh, how the records. That's well, there's put. just no shame in making money on creative endeavors. I don't. And I, doing what you're good at. That doesn't resonate with me. Exactly. And doing what you're good at and doing what you're talented at and people appreciating it. Like acting like he has no control over it. It's like, okay, if you don't want bed sheets, then don't do bed sheets, dude. Yeah. If you're not George Lucas, then don't be George Lucas. But. Exactly. And he had a lot of power. Now, you're talking about somebody with Universal Press Syndicate, who he always stayed with, I think, who you're talking about a guy who fought for and got more room in the Sunday Comics pages. That affects hundreds of newspapers. You know what I mean? And basically said during that whole thing and had his syndicate and his agents say to newspapers, like, you could either expand room on the Sunday pages for Calvin or you cannot run it. You have the choice. Like, that's how brazen he was. And that's how serious he was about his. And he largely got his way because people wanted to see his work and people wanted to see his strip. So you would think he would have, like you said, a little more agency and a little more power over what he wanted. But I think ultimately, just in trying to sort of predict I'm, I'm assuming but what his personality is is that just even dealing with that a little bit was just too much for him you know I don't know if it's an oversensitivity you know quote unquote or just not wanting to deal with it at all and basically ended the strip and has always said I never regretted it like I wanted this thing to end he says I could have milked this thing for another 20 years another 30 years until people were like rolling their eyes at it but I never wanted that but you know what's interesting Kyle 
Watterson has gone on record as really admiring Charles Schultz, creator of Peanuts. And Charles Schultz is the most sellout of cartoonists ever. This guy, by the 60s and 70s, had a tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars of empire just for merchandising Charlie Brown and his friends. So the fact that Watterson would admire somebody like this and still not endeavor to... You know, I'm not saying he has to be Charles Schultz, you know what I mean, and have people that are actually drawing. You could never see Watterson having people that actually drew the strip for him and stuff like that and ghost writers and ghost artists and stuff like that. Watterson wouldn't do that. But, you know, exercise some agency. But he supposedly he walked away from hundreds of millions of dollars from doing this. So in a way, I admire that. But it does seem beyond it does seem beyond the beyond. I would, you know, yeah. I don't have admiration for people that walk away from money. I have admiration if someone walks away, if someone's like, "Can you kill my wife for a million dollars?" and you walk away from that money. But if you're walking away from money to walk away from money, that doesn't impress me. No, at all. in I hear fact, you that on. kind of is depressing because you're given an opportunity that very few people, as it sounds like, very few people in the history of comic strips have really had a syndication deal like this and had demand like that. I don't disrespect him to do whatever he wants. If he says like. I don't want this to be anything but this comic strip, and that's it. Then that's cool. But being like, I'm gonna walk away from this money, and all you know. And I, I think the older I get, and the more pragmatic I get, I'm like, cool. You just fucked yourself. That's cool. I hope you're proud of yourself. I have no problem with you doing whatever you want with your creative. But I'm not. I don't respect the fact that you just turned down money and didn't want to do interesting things. And who knows the power that you could have had? And I'm not saying power over people. I'm saying like you could have gotten your message out to tons of people in cartoon format or in movie format or you know, had some interesting merch that you had complete control over. I don't know. That just being an outsider, that strikes out. I'm a little irritated by that. Yeah. And you know what? There's other anecdotes, and I don't know how true this is. A lot of, uh, you know, unfortunately with Bill Watterson, you know, who's basically reclusive, a lot of this stuff is secondhand stories. But apparently, and I could definitely believe this, at different points in time, guys like Spielberg, guys like John Lasseter at Pixar, which I definitely believe, went to him and was like, what is it going to take to do an animated film? And it was just like, click. <laughs> like, like not even a discussion. You know what I mean? It was just like not, in, completely not interested in adapting it to any other media. Nothing. Based on these anecdotal stories and it's kind of J.D. Salinger-esque nature, and I don't like comparing him to Salinger because although I don't, I think Catcher in the Rye is a vastly overrated book. I've always felt that way. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's an interesting book. I do not understand why it's this American classic. I do not get it. But... It's an interesting story, but I always respected that Salinger was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. You have every right to do that. Sure. And Salinger made enormous amounts of money off of that and what Zoe and whatever. Franny the fuck, and yeah, Zoe. Yeah, Franny and Zoe and, you know, whatever. He did a few other things. Same thing we were talking about Harper Lee a few episodes ago. Sure. And a similar story about a person, although she did later, or her estate did later release, you know, a sequel. Together novel. So I respect you. I'm, no one's, I don't say anyone should put a gun to the dude's head and be like, give us the goods. But... The Salinger comparison rings a little hollow to me because no one really had any beef with Salinger and no one also really had anything bad to say about him or like could say anything bad about him because he just didn't want to do it. It wasn't the whole sellout mantra. Right. I don't think Salinger's being like, I can fucking write whatever I want and be a sellout. Right, and it, right, and it right. it diminishes somehow, it somehow diminishes this great work of American fiction. What I'm curious about, I guess, is what I'm saying is, do people like him? Does, has this diminished the respect that he's gotten from people? He's known to be abrasive i think but he has befriended certain cartoonists there's two work i should say there's two different works that sort of try to chase him down and sort of 
uncover the enigma that is Bill Watterson. There's one book called Looking for Calvin and Hobbes, which I highly recommend, by an author named Nevin Martell. And there's also a documentary that was done called Dear Mr. Watterson. And Looking for Calvin and Hobbes, the book, is basically about this guy's going to Watterson's town and trying to find out about this guy. Like, just going to the front lines and being like, what is going on with this guy? And basically his town like covering for him, for lack of a better word. And the documentary sort of talks about people in Watterson's sphere, Charles Schultz's widow, Lee Salem, who is Watterson's longtime agent, people at the syndicate, other cartoonists then and now, and sort of their reflection. Some of them who know, some of them who do know Watterson. And he has come out and collaborated and done some stuff. Like he did a couple of collaborations with the Pearls Before Swine comic. He did collaborations with Outland. He did the forward for Charles Schultz's anniversary book. He's done, he's come out and done things. He's done a couple of lectures, just a couple of lectures. He's done an interview every eight years or something, you know? So it's not like you can't totally track down info about him, but it's hard to come by. And, you know, supposedly even the fact of like him being a very prolific watercolor artist, which is apparent in his strips, apparently he he was so concerned about his art getting out that he would do, he, I don't, and I don't know, again, I don't know how true these stories are, but they're very interesting anecdotes. And they are, they are kind of believable knowing what you would know from Bill Watterson is that he would do these watercolor paintings and then burn them just so people couldn't get a hold of them. I don't know, you man. Know? I, this guy doesn't strike me as someone that I would. He would go into his local bookstore. Almost ruins it. You know, like his fireside bookstore, whatever it was called, in his little town of Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And he would kind of secretly, sweetly sign the Calvin and Hobbes collection books. And once he found out that people were selling them online, completely stopped doing it. You know, like that kind of thing. That's fine. I mean, that that doesn't bother me. Yeah, like he was just like, forget it. No, this is not going to be a thing, you know. And supposedly, but supposedly when this guy Nevin who wrote the book, went into these places and asked about Watterson, like, you know, creepily and strangely, like, the townsfolk were almost, like, prepared for it and, like, covering up for him. Like, we don't know anything about that, you know. He, uh, we haven't seen him in It a reminds time. me of it. There's a documentary about Salinger that's a similar Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen thing, that. Where the guy, like, literally drives to his house. And this has the footage of him, Salinger, going to the post, yeah. the P.O. box and stuff like that. Really interesting, st- creepy kind of stuff. I, the but- tragedy of it for me is... Somebody who is as creative and somebody with the exquisite vision that Watterson had. And he had so much to say. And he was so passionate in his work that it's a shame to walk away from doing something if you feel in your heart that... You, I, I imagine that creative valve that just turn off at 38 years old after 10 years. I mean, maybe it did. But I imagine, I would suspect that it didn't. And to walk away from something that brought people so much joy, I'm not saying his job is to give people joy. He's going through whatever he's going through. But to turn that creative valve off and walk away from something is a sin, not for the lack of merchandise, but just for the lack of stopping your creation short when it could have been something wonderful. And I've always, it could have continued to be something wonderful. And I've always wished that he would return to comics, not to continue Calvin Hobbes, but to do something new. And I know it would be when you have something as seminal and as respected and as wonderful as Calvin Hobbes, it would be a tough act to follow and there's always that stigma. But how wonderful would it be to have him come back and maybe even do you know something with a little bit of merch? You know, I, that was always sort of my dream is to have Bill Watterson back and to have his voice. His voice is missing. Like that's how special Calvin and Hobbes is to me. I know, I know I'm not the only person that feels like this. A lot of people do. You know, and to have him missing from media... 
is just a shame to me, especially retiring at such a young age and walking away from it, you know, when it could have been so much more. That's the shame to me. Yeah, it strikes me as, you know, when you talk this this anecdotal story, may, maybe not true of him, like, getting the creation out but then destroying it so that no one can enjoy it or profit from it and stuff. It's almost as if he's unable to – it sounds like he's almost unable to separate two very fundamental things, which is, like, just because someone enjoys what you do or wants to get their hands on it or even wants to commercialize or monetize it doesn't mean that you have to create anything for them. Right. You know? But you could still create, and if the – after effect of you doing something is that a person wants it, then that doesn't mean you still had to create it. You could still create on your own terms and at your own speed and at Absolutely. your own cadence. If anybody could have done that, he could have. So that's that's the little confusing thing. It's like it's it's just like it seems petty. I couldn't imagine someone want you know if someone really enjoys my writing, for instance, and I have these notes that go into a novel that I made one day or something, and then there's just like a notebook of things, and someone stumbles across it at one point. It's like oh no, I'm gonna burn that. Right. <laughs> Just so you can't... I don't want you to enjoy it. I hope that's not true that he does that. You know, it, it's like... Because uh, that crosses over into insanity a little bit. It's. I think it's just... We get it, dude. Speaking from a pa- place of total ignorance on the man, that's how it kind of strikes me. Yeah. With his admiration for Peanuts and Charles Schultz, right? That's his name? Yeah. Is Maybe maybe there's just way more to the story because that is a contradiction. Oh, it's a huge contradiction. You know, I know I know how much he loved Charles Schultz and, and the work of Charles Schultz. And you could see in Morrison's work, you could see in the way he draws that you could see Charles Schultz's influence. As a draftsman and as an artist, Morrison surpassed Charles Schultz. But there's a lot of charm in Charles Schultz's work as well. But I think it's, you know, Watterson is really a polarizing figure. And I would love to, I would really love to know his, his whole story, you know. And, and again, like... It's not disparaging him. Like, he has the right to do all of this. It's just that I think there's so many unanswered questions that it just piques people's interest. And, you know, of course, he was really burned on, you know, you've seen these things before, like the, the decals of Calvin pissing on the Chevy symbol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or pissing oh, yeah. on the Ford so symbol. So that's like a totally And he's talked about that. Yeah. You know, and, but I have to think that, you know, and I'm not defending, I'm not defending it because that's shitty, but, and I hate it, but that, and that well could have happened whether Watterson had a different philosophy or not, but maybe it would have been to a less degree if Watterson just put stuff, maybe, you know, I don't know, but, you know, I think that really hurt Watterson. I mean, he jokes about it and says, you know, it's there's nothing I could do about it. You know, Really? They, there's nothing you could do about the people really that are not, selling those? I think it was such a thing, like such a huge thing that it was just like not worth, I don't think it's the type to like go after people for it, you know? That he just can't be bothered. Or it's weird. Like every decision I think this guy should make is like the decision he the opposite, make. right? It's like of course you. If I had a, if, if that was me, I'd sue the shit out of you for that. I would find the, the origin of that and put a stop to it. But yeah, and maybe they did try. I have to read. I'm, I'm interested to read more about this guy tonight because. Well, I guess I was curious. I guess it answers the question. I was like, is there has there ever been a renaissance or any like one off strip or anything that he's done since '95? Like, has he ever just published something? They did a couple of April Fool's things. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Pearls Before Swine comic did a whole send-up to Calvin and Hobbes. I know he's friends with Berkeley. Is it Berkeley Brethid who created Bloom County and Outland? They did a little collab together, but he largely stays away. He doesn't do a lot. You he know, must have a, made a pretty good money to be able to just... Yeah, and he does his compilation books. Yeah. you know, He, he puts out the compilation books, and I think they did a few iterations of that even later. Because they they were contemporary to the strip even being out, 
but also he did, you know, I think he does reprintings and he does compilations of several books together and he's done, you know, really comprehensive collections with new forwards and stuff like that from time to time. But that's the only thing he's ever done. You know, apparently there were like very limited edition t-shirts at some point for something, which I'm sure go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars if, if you could even find them. But he's never done anything. I mean, the, the man's never merchandised the strip at all. Nothing. Not so much as a calendar, a mug, a greeting card. You know how, how much Hallmark would have probably given for Calvin and Hobbes? Anything, you know? But yeah, he just refuses to go that route. But I, I try with Bill Watterson, as fascinated as I am about him as a person, I try to just really concentrate on the work because his work is so wonderful, you know, and so imaginative and the different iterations that inspired me late in junior high school, early in high school and the tracer bullet comics. And they're almost like, they're almost like works within a work, you know, when Calvin imagined he was spaceman Spiff and he's like this intergalactic, you know, space warrior that fights all these aliens with his laser gun and stupendous man. Who's like his superhero, you know, alter ego and, you know, just like the really funny strips where, you know, it just starts out of these realistic depictions of like, oh, my God, the you know, there's a runaway train locomotive going 150 miles an hour. And, oh, no, Farmer Brown's tractor's stuck on the stuck on the rails. And, oh, my God, this plane is crashing. And it's like it's going to be the hugest catastrophe. And then it's just Calvin in the sandbox doing all this stuff with his toys. <laughs> like it's really twisted and demented. Yeah. But it's like it's actually kind of cute, but also sick. You know, it's like he's such an interesting He's he creates such an imaginative and interesting scenarios and created such a mem- memorable characters, not only with Calvin and Hobbes, but with the parents and the, you know, Miss Wormwood, which is his teacher and Mo, the bully who gives Calvin a hard time and Susie Durkins, who's sort of his contemporary, but his rival and the super smart girl in class and Rosalind, the babysitter. It's a very memorable and well-realized universe, much more so than most comic strips ever dare to be. You know, and just how he pushed the limits of storytelling and pacing and layout and fighting for more space so he could do these huge things. And some some of the Sunday strips would just be one, you know, one illustration and how innovative it was, you know, and how isn't it funny that no one tr- no one dared to be that innovative before him in, in comic strips, you know, probably sadly, because it's a lot of work. You know what I mean? He was never just resting on his laurels and doing the same thing over and over again. He was always fighting to push creativity and push the boundaries. And I always really respected that. And you always felt like you were getting more quality than you deserved, Mm. you know? And that's a rare thing. I think that's still sort of a rare thing, you know, in media. And, you know, I think that's something that you inherently believe in and that's a philosophy of yours but that's a that's sort of a rare thing Kyle you know and that's things what's what made him special and I don't know how much of the JD Salinger effect where it's like is Catcher in the Rye so great or is it just because JD Salinger didn't write very many things it could have been I mean that's a great point because I've, I've often wondered with Salinger again not disparaging some people really adore that book I'm not disparaging I like that it. book very much and yeah. Franny and Zoe is one of Zoe is one of my favorites I've never even read that one it's great so I'm not trying to disparage I think it's no less than a good book I, I have no doubt about that I remember I read it all in one I mean not that it's like a, a tome but I read it all in one sitting and I liked it but I, I didn't understand it and I often wondered I'm like was this a really shrewd move to just make this book incredibly relevant for the rest of time because it 
it's encapsulated by this man who just disappeared off the grid when he could have gotten a publishing deal with anyone and done anything he done wanted. Done anything, sure. And so there's something about that, but I but I also realize like people think Grapes of Wrath is like one of the great American novels of all time, and I fucking hate that book. So I think that like it's just it's just one of these situations where I think I just I'm, I'm a little off kilter with people's literary tastes, but you know, regardless. I'm curious about what the, the ending of this strip in 1995 was it was it a planned ending or did they just pull the plug like did you know it was coming or if I'm not mistaken I don't want to talk out of turn but if I'm not mistaken he printed a letter to his reader saying you know I'm walking away you know I think that you know it's sort of run its course I want to end it while you know I, I want to pursue I'm, I'm going to stay with my syndicate but I'm going to pursue art on my own terms and he he ended a strip where Calvin and Hobbes were basically talking about, you know, it's a new day, you know, let's go explore and seize the day. I'm paraphrasing, but let's go explore. They, you know, there was often there was a couple of different things that occurred in the strip that were typical things that he went back to. Where Calvin and Hobbes were together on either a wagon, sitting in a wagon going down a hill, which is like a very dangerous thing, like they're going over rocks and you know jumping into a lake type of thing, or they were doing the same thing on a sled. Or they were just in the snow, or they were just walking together, and it was a. I think it was his way of making, you know, having a conversation between Calvin and Hobbes. But rather than than just sitting there on the on the stoop, it was something that they were doing together, and it ended with that typical scenario of them walking together through the woods, and they were. That's what Calvin was saying to Hobbes, like, "Come on, old friend, like, the, you know, it's a new day. It's time to explore new adventures." And so it ended on an upbeat sort of swing he didn't walk away in any kind of disgruntled way but he walked away and it wasn't like just a thing where he did a strip and then two weeks later was like i guess i'm just gonna stop this i'm not gonna go back to work you know type of thing it was a planned thing and i think if i'm not mistaken i think he says he was considering this you know and he says that in his letter in his final letter to readers that it wasn't an easy decision for him it was something that he long mulled over and maybe talked about with his wife who he's been who was married to for a long time and I think, you know, Watterson never had any kids. As far as I know, he was he was childless. And, you know, he just he just walked away. The one thing I could say about Watterson is, which I can really, what, there's one aspect of him that I could relate to in the fact that I think what always resonated in his work and in the strip was that he was having fun. And the fun always came through the work. And I, I think I never hoped to be as talented as Bill Watterson. It's just not a thing. Very few people are going to be as talented as Bill Watterson, but I think I do have something that's Watterson-esque in the fact that I art is fun for me, and I think the fun, hopefully the fun resonates through my work. And a lot of people say that joy does resonate through my work, and that's very pleasing to me. And I think his work was always like that, not only through his art, but through his writing. And I think what probably happened was that all of the pressures that he inherently felt, you know, maybe somebody else, person B, might not feel pressured like he did but wherever it was in his scenario and his personality interpreting all that pressure probably stopped it from being fun for him I would imagine and when it stopped being fun he just didn't want to do it anymore and that's something that I understand that's something I understand and I don't I don't think he stopped I don't think you stop being this creative machine I'm sure he went on and did a god knows he didn't stop drawing and painting, though. There's no way. You can't turn that off. You know what I mean? But he wanted to get, it was so important to him, and he felt so jaded by it that he just wanted to go and do it on his own terms, and he never returned. And I thought, I always thought he would return. I always thought there would be some sort of period of time 
and the wounds would heal and he would make a return to commercial art or make a return to comics. And so yeah, it's been 23 years. So can you imagine? I mean, if he said tomorrow, I'm coming back to be like, all right, what do you need? Like, you know what I mean? Here's, take our money. Like, you know what I mean? And to not come back. I mean, that really, you, you imagine what he must have gone through. What, you know, for whatever reason that was construed as such turmoil for him. Yeah, I can, I mean, not in a, not in a, in, a, in his way, not in his spotlightish way, but I can relate to being somewhere and doing something and not wanting to do it anymore. And, yeah. And people thinking it's incredible to walk away from it. I did it twice, actually. You did and indeed. So, and so sometimes things do run their course, but to your point, especially when I left kind of funny, you know, I was profoundly unhappy there. And it wasn't turning out the way I wanted it to turn out. It wasn't what I wanted it to be. Right. And what I hoped and dreamed it would be. And so I walked away from it, but I couldn't turn off this need to do it my way. And that's what this became, you know? Absolutely. So so it's almost like I can relate to him in one respect where it's like I walked away from money and e-fame in a way and all those kinds of things because I really was profoundly unhappy with it. But it wasn't the creative part of it that I was unhappy with. It was... The ancillary stuff that was on, you know, so in that way, it's similar. I couldn't turn that off. I tried to walk away from video games, but I couldn't. And I tried to walk away from video games. Because I thought maybe it's this that makes me unhappy, but it wasn't. And so there is that other side. But you had to go through that period. Right. To sort of sometimes that takes time for that to suss out. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it takes 23 years. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I it, it took it took six months for me to be like, I got to. I let other people and other experiences ruin this for me. And I'm actually really good at this. Yeah. And I want and I enjoy doing it and I have more to give. Yes. But I'm going to do it my way. Thank goodness. You know, and so I can relate to that in my own strange way. Absolutely. People thought I was crazy when I left IGN, you know, I think less so when I left kind of funny, but people thought I was crazy when I left IGN. And yeah. Well, that was a huge risk. Yeah, but it but it worked out. It and did and it's still I'm still the same dude and with the same creative energy, just doing it a different way. And Absolutely. I, so part of me wishes for you and for all of the many millions of fans of this comic strip and this man out there that he got over whatever he was getting over. But you made an interesting point that might be kind of a canary in the coal mine that he has no kids and like he might have his millions of dollars in syndication money and been a wise investor and lives lean or whatever and is just happy. And he's like, I don't have any heirs and I have no, no like, what's the point of me going back and making hundred million dollars when it's just going to sit in a bank account or something? Yeah, and, and, that's uh, actually a good point. You know, like I don't need more money. I don't have anyone to give it to. I just want to live my life and enjoy my life. Like, right. Th- this finite amount of time on this, bl- on this blue rock that we have here. So <laughs> exactly. So there is a little bit of a softening in my stance from that regard because maybe he just doesn't see a point. Some people can't stop. It's never enough. Right. Like the money never, you're talking about. Right. I do well. But if I if someone was like, you can have, we're just going to give you $10 million. I'm like, I could potentially make this work for the rest of my life. Right. It could stretch that out. Like, for sure. Right. And I would be perfectly content maybe going off the grid like he did at that point. Because I don't need more than that. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a self-restraint in there maybe as well, but still. Definitely restraint. But I would still be, and maybe I don't know him and I wouldn't say that he's not, he, it doesn't hurt him or itch at him. But I would still be like when I left kind of funny, one of the things that really got me back into games and made me sad was the constant barrage of people saying, like, we miss your voice and we need you back. And Absolutely. we miss all that kind of stuff. And that, that did drag me back in because I'm like, because I felt bad. I, I was almost apologetic and sorry that I, I removed myself from people's lives like that so right. suddenly. Right. And that made me sad and that, that affected me and touched me. And maybe he, you know, he's just in a different spot. And it showed you, it showed you, it displayed to you how much you mean to people. Sure. And how much your work means to people. Yeah, I was in a, I was in a position, you know, at that place with one person in particular where I felt so useless 
the entire time I was there in this person's eyes, right? And like right. so diminished in quality and diminished in value and made to feel like I didn't matter. And I left under those under the auspices of that where I'm like, this doesn't even matter to anyone really at the end of the day. It's just the zeitgeist right now, people talking about, but no one's going to care. Sure. But it never went away. People every day for months and months and months were like, we want you, to, you know. So, because that's the impact you had. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's and yeah, isn't it funny how everybody's journey is different? You know, is. you just needed your path, you just needed that time to realize that you were indeed passionate about this thing and you weren't going to stop. You know, you were just a li- you just needed that time to sort of get that new breath of fresh life into you. You know, where it's with him, it's just he's never come back. You know, so it's it's interesting. You know, we we miss you, Bill. I I, I know people have said this over and over again, but and you can't make anybody do. That's the tragic thing. You can't make anybody do. You know, he could be fixing to come back in a week. He could never come back again. But his. It's so it's sad in a way for me, and I know I could be very sentimental and very overly emotional about things, but it's sad to know that we're never going to have that creative voice again because it was just so inspiring. You know, it was just so inspirational and so entertaining, and there'll never be another Bill Waterson, and I, I honestly don't think that there'll be another comic that good again. I just don't. He it was that special. You'll have to go watch or read Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my second favorite. <clears throat> Never really understood the allure of that one. No, <laughs> is that still running? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. Know. I, I don't know that I've looked at comics in in many years at this point. But I'm gonna call up here. We have just a few anecdotes and questions and comments. I think it would be a nice way to kind of. I can't wrap wait to up. hear people's. I, I I could talk about Bill Waterson all day, so I can't wait to hear what people have to say. It's not loading. That's letters. all right. I'm gonna talk about you. I'm gonna talk about a couple other strips that I love. Okay, cool. Dennis the Menace by Hank Ketchum. Gorgeous. You want to talk about draftsmanship? That that man could draw. Crazy Cat by George Harriman. I know it's one of Bill Waterson's favorites. Pogo by Disney animator, once Disney animator, Walt Kelly. Beautiful strip. Berkeley, of course, Berkeley. I don't know if it's Berkeley Breathed or Berkeley Breathed, but he did Bloom County and does Outland. And Zitz by Jim Borgman. And For Better or For Worse by Lynn Johnson. I mean, gorgeously drawn strip. We have three. We have a trio of input here. Oh, cool. And the reason we have so few questions this time around, remember, if you support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand at the $2 level or higher a month, you'll get early knowledge of the topics we're going to record for every wave of knockback, and you can submit your questions, comments, concerns, ideas, and thoughts, and you can do it for one topic or all of the topics, and we have a lot of feedback for all of the topics, except for this one, because we actually threw this one in late. We did. So we only had really no time at all. This was going to come in a future wave, but we decided to kick it up. So that's, there's, that's the reason why this episode is going to be a little shorter than we usually go. Tyson Williams says, easily the best comic strip in the history of comic strips and is truly a treasure. So here, here reiterates what you say. Never be another. John Cesarelli says, I grew up reading my older siblings' collections and instantly fell in love with Calvin and Hobbes with no idea the larger lessons included by Watterson. Looking back on these comics, I'm always fascinated about the insights, observations, and nuggets of wisdom he included in stories about a six-year-old and his tiger best friends. Or best friend. Tigers will do anything for tuna sandwich. <laughs> well done. The funny thing is, I know we talked about it a little bit before, is it never felt heavy-handed. And you know what else I really appreciate about Calvin and Hobbes? It's timelessness. It's proven timelessness. Because not only do my kids love it, especially my son loves for me to actually read him the strips at night. And he loves, like, when Calvin is, like, up to no good at the dinner table and making fun of his mom's dinner and what the heck is this type of thing. 
but he he finds it so funny. But also, my daughter, who's a few years older than him, loves it. But I also hear a lot of anecdotes about you know contemporary dads now showing the, their kids the books, and the kids love it. You know, so I love the fact that it's because it is cute and it is colorful. But it's all I think also it's just the sweetness is is just timeless. You know. Jason Bola has our final comment. It's a trio of questions for you. Sure. You might have talked a little bit about these in various ways, but we'll go through them. Favorite Calvin and Hobbes strip? Okay. Do you know what which one that would be? I'll just plead the fifth because I don't want to commit it to just one. <laughs> Actually, there is... <laughs> I'll, I'll say any Spaceman spiff strip is almost amazing because a lot of them, Kyle, are him imagining himself as Spaceman Spiff fighting some like vile alien monster and it's almost always turns out to be either his teacher or his principal like his teacher sending him down to the print like oh Spaceman Spiff is caught again by the evil Zerg aliens or whatever the vile disgusting and it's like his teacher bringing him down to the principal's office you know or something Spaceman Spiff was always a joy for me and I love I I also love Stupendous Stupendous Man but there's this I I'm forgetting this, but there's a specific strip, a Sunday strip, where there's a water balloon fight. And I wish I could remember the context. There's a water balloon fight between him and Hobbes, and it's just gorgeous. And I wish I could remember it more. But that and the dinosaur fantasy strips where he's playing dinosaurs in the sandbox, but he's, you know, it's like gorgeously illustrated, almost like science book depiction of the stegosaurus fighting the triceratops or whatever and it doesn't even look like a calvin and Hobbes strip i love all that stuff he also asks jason also asks first strip you read if you remember like mm, the very initial one that i don't remember which one i remember being in miss mailer's ad design class and having i had there was a kid my friend ryan who's a year younger than me in school and we both loved calvin and Hobbes in ninth grade and we would bring the art books in or the you know the compilation books the early compilation books like yukon ho and weirdos from another planet and stuff. And we would just, you know, glaze over them and just, you know, fawn over everything. You know, how gorgeous the drawings were and how, um, you know, how funny they were. Because they were quite humorous. I don't want to underplay that also. Like, Calvin was a Calvin was a pip, <laughs> you know. So, But the first one, I don't remember. Does he say the first one he remembered seeing? No, no. No answers for me. No idea. Not, no recollection of that. Good question. but. And finally, and I think this is the most interesting question from Jason. Okay. Most profound advice from Watterson that you saw on any of the strips that came through the work. I suppose that's what he means. Unless there's something more direct that he was talking about. I don't know. I liked, I really just liked that whole, you know, we talked about a little earlier and Watterson sort of ended everything with it, but I always loved that sort of seize the day sentiment that came through the strip, you know, like we're going to go, we're going to go. It's time. We're going to go down this dangerous hill in the wagon and jump into the lake, you know, or we're going to seize the day by going to play in the woods. Or we're going to seize the day by playing up in the fort and spending time with my best friend, you know, my buddy. And I think two things. One, seizing the day. And two, using your imagination. Because everything was about 
Calvin's imagination, whether it was his alter e- imagined alter egos or Hobbes, or he had a transmogrifier box, which he would, it was basically an upside down cardboard box that he wrote transmogrifier box. And then he would walk in and turn into whatever he wanted, a duck or an alligator or whatever. And then from there would set the, the tone for the strips that were going to come where he pretended he was an alligator or he was fed up with Hobbes. So he was going to become an elephant. So Hobbes wouldn't tackle him every time he came in the door from school anymore. Like, you know, he would be the one thing that Hobbes was afraid of, you know. And turned out Hobbes wasn't afraid of it at all. He would still, ta- you know, that, that that type of thing, you know. So that was that that those two things: the seize the day element and the imagination element. That's cute, very cute. I like that. This was an interesting episode. Is there any anything you want to close with before we get to our lightning round? Um, I would just say if there was, I think often about this, and if I don't know if John Owen and I talked about it during our interview, but if there was one artist I could sit down with past or present it would definitely be bill bill watterson if i could sit down with bill watterson and talk to him for an hour i would i would choose it's i think it says a lot that i would choose him over picasso i would choose him over a lot of people that i really walt uncle walt that i really admire because he means his work means so much to me i'm, I'm grateful that we got to do this episode and talk about it a little yeah me bit. too it was very interesting it was very interesting. Thank I'm you, interested to see how this lightning round will go since I'm not really familiar with the work. Oh, you just make your best guess. All right. Fair All enough. right. Here we go. Calvin and Hobbes lightning round. Calvin or Hobbes? Hobbes. That's a good choice. Spaceman Spiff or Captain Stupendous? Who's Captain Stupendous? Actually, Stupendous Man. Stupendous Man, I think, really. Stupendous Man. What is he? What is his? His whole thing is like he's this. He Stupendous Man is this, this one of Calvin's alter egos where he's a superhero. So he could fly. He, you know, he, you know, say, swoops in to save the day from the from the runaway train. Spaceman Spiff, I'm going to go Spaceman with that. Spiff I'm, is, I'm over the superhero, though. Spaceman Spiff is hilarious. You, you made a good choice there. Stuffed animal or security blanket? Stuffed animal. You're going with stuffed animal. Yeah. Did you ever have anything like that? Did you ever have a stuffed, a plush or a... Not, not anything that, like, existed for, you know, a long period of time, I don't think. No. I don't remember you having anything like that. No, I don't think that I did. I think that I might have had a lamb chop or something. Was that a thing? That oh, I, might have? I think was that you or Allie? Maybe it was. I thought it was me, but maybe it is Allie. I, I remember know. that lamb chop. I totally remember that. I think that was me. Was that you? But you, Allie will know better than me. All right. But yeah, no, I had no, I had nothing like that. I had a, a lot of stuffed animals, but nothing, nothing like no marquee item. You know, no marquee thing. Um. Okay. <laughs> this is a funny one. Get rid of slimy girls. Or Playhouse. Now, I should tell you, Kyle, Get Rid of Slimy Girls was an acronym. It was G-R-O-S. I don't know why. Oh, the, it was the last S that was invo- it, that was capitalized because Get Rid of Slimy Girls was Calvin and Hobbes' club up in their fort so Susie would stay out. So, But Calvin and Hobbes never saw eye-to-eye on Susie Durkins because Hobbes definitely had a crush on Susie, and uh, Calvin wasn't having it. Oh, interesting. So... So the options are, give me the options. Get again. rid of slimy girls okay. or playhouse, which is what Susie always wanted to do with Calvin. Get rid of slimy girls. I think I'm going to agree with you there. How did you answer? Spaceman Spiff or yeah, Stupendous Spaceman Man? Spiff. Okay, Spaceman you didn't. Spiff, yeah. Spaceman Spiff over Stupendous Man. Charlie Brown or Linus? I'm, I'm, Linus is the bird, right? No, Linus is the kid with the who's, security Who's the blanket. bird? Woodstock. That's Woodstock. Oh, Linus is the one with the, the, the blanket, right. Okay. And he's very philosophical and very smart. Linus. Okay, well, I'm going to go with him then. Yeah. He's the one that plays the piano? 
Or is that Charlie no, that's Brown? Schroeder. Schroeder. Who the fuck is Schroeder? Schroeder's the little blonde kid that Jesus Lucy Christ. has a crush on. Lucy being Linus's sister. Look at me. I don't know anything about this. You got to get down with Charlie Brown, my friend. Re- do I really need to get? Like, I don't think you have to. Okay, good. Not at all. Because I don't know if I'm going to actually do it. <laughs> but Sparky Schultz would appreciate it. I would have. I, I think you told me the that Woodstock's name. I remember that from a previous episode, and I remember that generally. But yeah. I think every time I hear the word Linus in relation to the peanuts, I think of the bird. That's weird. Yeah, it well, yeah, it is. That's and it's funny. also wrong. Woodstock actually got phased out of the peanuts, I feel like, a long time ago. Really? He's not really a thing. Really? Yeah. He seems he's to be in like, and him out. And Snoopy seem to be like the most interesting part of they're that. They're cute together, but I don't and I think they're more in the strip together. Oh, I see. But in the specials, Woodstock isn't really a thing where he's sort of an ancillary thing. So that's interesting. So, okay. Don't merchandise or completely, totally sell out. Completely, totally sell out. I just, I don't know if people see eye to eye with me on this, but I just don't see the problem with making your money. You know, I listen to this football podcast called Pro Football Talk. I really love it a lot. And Mike Florio, who's the host of it, always makes the case that, like, you can never really get mad at a player holding out, unless they're holding out on a contract that's already signed. But if they want, like, a new deal or they want an extension or whatever, you only have a moment in time to make this happen. And then you lose the spark or you lose the athleticism or you lose your age or your talent or your skill. Make your money. And it's funny, man, because my audience tells me that sometimes. Yeah. When I refuse to put ads and things for like the first year of CLS. That's were like, nice. People were like, make your money. That's dude. nice. That means that those are people that really care about you. I agree. And so I think it's just I think it's sound advice for everyone. Like it's like dad always told me about capitalism. Something is worth what someone will pay for it. Absolutely. That's it. And if someone's willing to get hand, hand you a boatload of money for X, Y, or Z, and you're comfortable doing that, and he clearly wasn't, but if he was comfortable selling out, then sell the fuck out. Yeah. yeah. Cool. There's, by the way, major musicians, major athletes, major entertainers that have sold out and sold out and sold out, and no one ever says anything to them. And they're beloved. Michael Jackson is a beloved multi-time sellout. Madonna is a beloved multi-time sellout. The Beatles sold out in a major way. The Beatles. Listen to the first half of the rec- first half of the record, uh, Beatles discography. Listen to the second half. There you go. Tell me what they got. Production. Yeah. Tell me which and tell me which records were better. The yes. last five. <laughs> you know. No, so, you're absolutely right. Now man. they didn't tour and stuff like that, but they didn't tour because they couldn't play it li- that stuff live, right? Or they would have. So it was too studio dependent. Yeah, it was. You wouldn't be able to make some of this stuff happen. So I just, to me, I'm like. Why do we talk about this only in it really only happens in regards to musicians and in regards to artists. It never happens in regards to athletes. No, you're right. Who, you know, I got mad at John Tavares for leaving the Islanders, but I didn't get mad at him for leaving. I got mad at him because he held out until the like he didn't say anything to us for a long time when we could have traded him and got something for him. Yeah. But I certainly am not mad for him mad at him for going where he wanted to go and making his money somewhere else. No, you know? it injured your team ultimately. Yeah. Or it, potentially. It, yeah. It, 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 if if he just went to us before the trade deadline and said, like, I'm not interested in resigning, we could have traded him. Yeah. And gotten a piece. Sure. But instead he waited until the very end and we got nothing. That's why I'm mad about it. I'm not mad that he signed where he wanted to sign to make his money where he wanted to make his money. I think that's a very rational stance. To me, that makes sense. You know what speaks to me as you're talking, something that dawns on me with Bill Watterson that I have to respect? Him walking away from so much money when he knows somebody like, I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but let's just say Jim Davis, right? That guy's been phoning it in since the frigging 70s with Garfield, right? He had to know approximately how much Jim Davis made on merchandising. And you would just look at Garfield as compared to, I'm not picking on Garfield, but if you would just compare a Garfield strip to a Bill, to a Calvin and Hobbes strip and 
obviously you would value Calvin and Hobbes more, right? That him knowing how much some of his peers and contemporaries were making and be willing to make less money says a lot to me. That would drive me absolutely bananas. Do you think Jim Davis does all of his own strips? I don't believe so. I don't want to talk out of turn, but I believe he's had ghost people working for him for years. That's an empire. You know what I mean? Jim Davis isn't going to sit around drawing his own shit. There's no way. <laughs> Good for him. There's no. I don't think so. I mean, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't see that. I don't understand who likes Garfield, but it's cool if you do. And clearly he has an audience. And so that's a great example of saying like, you know what? And it's if a the classic. Market, the market can withstand that, then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And Garfield's nostalgic. Yeah. Give it that. Yeah. You know. Okay, let's finish up here, my friend. Miss Wormwood or Principal Spittle? I don't know either of these characters, but I'm going to go with Miss Wormwood because she's, I like. She's I enjoy funny. the name. She's funny, and she looks like such a teacher. She's like really old and at her wit's end, and she's still teaching kindergarten or whatever. It's hilarious. <laughs> you know, and Calvin just tortures her endlessly. Comic strips or comic books? I think comic strips are a little more palatable for me. I never understood comic books. Yeah. I tried many times. Me too. I don't understand, even if I'm reading them in the right order, sometimes the panels, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like how sometimes they're asymmetric. Absolutely. I like, know exactly what you mean. I'm like, I don't, is this, is it right to left or do I go up and down at this Absol- point? I know exactly. What you, I read manga, so it's especially confusing for me to trend, go back to American comic books. So Kyle, would you prefer to ride a wagon down a very steep hill or s- ride a sled down a very steep hill? Sled. Seems, You'd a go with less, the sled? seems a little less dangerous. You pick up probably more speed. And fun. Oh, yeah. Right? I love sledding. The speed. Oh, yeah. Less bumpy. We had it when I went to school in Maine, we had a dude, it wasn't even a hill. It was like a, a complete precipice. I, I would bet you anything that if you went to that school, York Middle School in York, Maine today, there was this hill that was so huge behind the, the school, right behind it. And it was literally just like a basically oh a drop off. That's hard. And I cannot imagine that there's not a fence around that today. In Maine, we get Maine winters, and we would bomb that hill. You man. went down that thing. Oh my god, we would eat shit on that <laughs> hill. But in hindsight, I can't believe that people just like it was just there. You right. could just push someone off; they'd probably die. We're talking about like a like a few degrees. That's insane. Of incline. That's crazy. How high was it? It was. I mean, it's hard to say. Hard. To, I would say it's probably like forty feet. That's something a, like that's high. Holy shit. I can see it in my mind's eye still. We call it Suicide Hill. You should have went down in a shopping cart. Bam would have been proud yeah, of Yeah, Bam. <laughs> Fucking nut jobs. Chris Pontius. Those guys are the best. Maybe someday we'll do an episode on those guys. Oh, I love Jackass. You and I used to really enjoy that together. It was so fun. I, saw, I told you I saw Bam's dad. I didn't know Bam by any stretch of the imagination, but Bam and I were together in Philly as Bam was coming up. I was around. So, you know, it was high and by type of thing. And I saw Phil. I saw his dad, Phil, at... Where did I see him? Oh, at Dutch Wonderland up in Pennsylvania in, uh, I'm forgetting, what's the Amish country name again? Uh, Jesus Christ, I should know this stuff. Oh, Lancaster. In Lancaster. And he came up. He was like, hey, what's going on? I think he recognized me from, because he used to be around filming Bam all the time, especially when Bam was younger. And I was like, how's Bam? You know, is he still in Amsterdam? And he's like, no, he's home. And that was right before Bam came out to try to give skateboarding another shot. You know, and he was recovering from all his chemical things. And now Bam's a dad and everything. I really like Bam a lot. I yeah, don't yeah, know I him very well. Yeah, but yeah, but I remember you being in that in that I was circulating in that, sphere. In that circle. Yeah. I was in that sphere. In that skate circle. I was a an extra. <laughs> as it were. Okay. Monster under the bed or monster in the closet? The monster under the bed was always more horrifying to me. That's hilarious. Like Calvin, there's there's strips where Calvin's like, is there any monsters under the bed? And then the monster's like, no. <laughs> like answers him back, like, no. <laughs> Calvin's got the baseball bat. 
Okay, that's it. We're done. That's it. That's the last one. All right. That was a good episode. I well enjoyed done. that. I enjoyed that very much. Oh, I enjoyed that too. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to our show, CLS Knockback, our retro podcast. If you enjoy it and you want to support us on Patreon, please consider doing so. Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. You can get each episode ad-free a week early. You can submit topic ideas, vote on other topic ideas, submit questions, comments, concerns, etc. for the show. Get exclusive episodes of Knockback. For supporting the show at only a dollar a month, you get an exclusive episode of one of my shows each month. There are three exclusive Knockback episodes, TGIF, Mighty Ducks, and which is the other one? Stay by the Bell. That. I got to listen to that one. I haven't listened to that one. I'll put them on Dropbox. So, you so can good. They will not be released to the public. So if you want to hear those, those, you know, I don't want to say never. I have no intention of releasing them to the public, maybe in a few years or something. But yeah. certainly not anytime soon. So if you want to go check those out, please do. Please support us. If not, if you listen on free feeds, leaving us a nice review, a nice score on iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen is really helpful for us algorithmically. It helps us find a new audience. So please consider doing that as well. We appreciate you. We love you. Thank you so much. See you next time. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Azan Isa Al-Raisi, Ahmad Always, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Jeremy Brokos, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Matthew Canoy, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, David Cox, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amore, Daniel Delanicos, Travis to Pew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Nicholas J. Gorblish, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Dominic Rostini, Miranda Grubba, Random Guy Radio, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Josh Yeager, Clarence Johnson, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, John Clote, Kevin Kamaki, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Jackson Lasuqua, Daniel Laws, Joe Law. Austin, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lewin Ray Loper, Brendan Lyle, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Michael Martello, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mock Media, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Ryman. Schneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Riley Smith, Gerard Stuave, Stephen Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael Edward Went, Griffin West, Mike Wan, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Richter86, Barrick, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, and Donk2015.